for goodness sake. I mean, that, that scares me. That really scares me. That's got to stop. And anybody that puts that kind of idea forward is bordering on pseudoscience. Welcome to Advice Amplified. Today's guest is Cameron Waldron. Blind acceptance of a book. I So many times I hear people saying, oh, The Psychology of Money is such a wonderful book. No, it's not. I rarely read a book because books are a very brief summary at best with a load of anecdotes that aren't even reliable. In this episode, we're going to dig into financial well-being. We're going to look at some of the science that backs it, some of the challenges around the current applications, and then look forward to how the industry should evolve. Because it's been proven for over a decade now that just teaching financial knowledge doesn't work. It does not work. Really interesting in wearing two hats. So as an IFA, obviously, has that deep understanding of financial planning and the needs of, of clients. But also as a lead consultant at the Financial Wellbeing Lab, there's a scientific approach um, following a, a psychology master's degree with loads of really interesting insights and understanding their applications to our industry. This is what the industry should be doing if it's serious about they call the advice gap. I'm not so sure about the advice gap. I really love this conversation and I think you will too. Um, and if you did, please take a look at some of our earlier episodes. We've got some really great guests and, and great episodes for you to check out. Thank you. Cameron, welcome to Advice Amplified. Good to be here. It'd be really interesting to dig in to, to dig into um, what your perception is of you know existing or emerging ideas of financial well-being and, and the drawbacks of maybe those definitions. There's some fantastic work being done in the academic world on this, and there's some fantastic work being done by you know policy institutes, government agency, money and pension services doing some brilliant work in this area. As is you know the financial capability um, institute. So there's there's and th and there's sort of organizations like that globally, where there's good academic research going on, there's a big difference between their concept of financial well-being or subjective financial well-being and what our industry seems to be putting forward. And, you know, the idea that we can rely on an out-of-date definition extrapolated into a way of selling more products and services, it's just bizarre to me when I put my academic hat on. Um, I'd rather us be using the data correctly. Um, and certainly, you've got to go to the research, you've got to go to the studies, and you've got to apply the scientific method to actually understand those studies as well. It's not as simple as reading a book. I rarely read a book because books are a very brief summary at best with a load of anecdotes that aren't even reliable. Um, or are using examples of people who have bear no relation to me or my clients. So you've got to be really careful uh, in terms of not extrapolating a bit of science into a general or universal truth. Those things don't exist. And anybody that puts that kind of idea forward is bordering on pseudoscience. Get back to the facts, get back to the data, critically evaluate the data. And that's why it's really important that I took the view. Well, this has to this has to be understood from a, from a scientific academic approach. So I know you've taken all of that kind of learning and understanding and insight and developed your own basis and, and methodology and, and, and tool for assessing um, financial wellbeing and using that in the advice process. It'd be great to learn more about how that works. So what we tried to do was say, well, okay, this is great. This research, these studies are really useful, but let, what's their practical application? And, and once again, took the approach: how can we use a, this 
in terms of a practical application, whether you're giving advice in France or Germany or Australia or UK or US, wherever you are. Um, so we tried to build a set of psychometrics from very reliable sources, from you know methodologies that are well used in, in psychology research in particular, and extrapolate that out to a system that an advisor could use to be more effective in terms of really understanding their client properly. So what we're trying to do is identify and stripping away the behavioral biases in, in this in this process. Because if you do do it rigorously, you shouldn't have to worry about the behavioral biases. They do just fall to one side. And this obsession with behavioral biases is just bizarre. Yes, it's important when it comes to investment strategy, but when it comes to actually understanding who your client is and what their needs are, if you follow a good, rigorous psychometric approach, you kind of don't have to worry about those things. They'll come up in the data anyway. So we use a combination of a, you know, a financial capability assessment with, with a financial literacy assessment. And we also look then at things like learning capacity, because we know learning capacity has a massive impact in terms of how people can develop improved financial well-being. Even if you understand what the needs are of your client, you've also got to understand what's an effective way of improving that, that situation that hopefully will lead to their perception of their own financial well-being being better. And it's got to be down to the individual. I think, you know, I will make one exception in terms of books I've read in the past 12 months. There's a brilliant neurologist at uh, Cambridge University called Camilla Nord who, who produced a book last year. And really the fundamental message is we're all completely different. There's no universal methodology or, or universal Yes, we've got theoretical frameworks we can work to, but there's no, there, sh there should be no templated way of doing things when it comes to our clients. Every single client is individual. We've got a poster in our office that says, once when we write the same report twice, we shut the door. Yep. And this is a way of really getting to understand what our clients' capabilities are, what their needs are, where their shortcomings might be, and also identify what are the things we can help them with not just in terms of the advice we're providing, but in terms of their own skills. I'd rather teach skills than financial literacy because it's been proven for over a decade now that just teaching financial knowledge doesn't work. It does not work. So what we were trying to do is build a, an assessment. You do need training to use the assessment. There's a lot under the bonnet. It's not difficult, but you do need to, you know, it's like any software that we have in our industry. If you don't use it responsibly, you end up using it irresponsibly. Um, and that leads to bad advice. So, you know, with, with proper training, these are a set of psychometrics that really we know work. We've been testing them for over a year. We've had another IFA practice using part of it as well with astounding results. The other nice thing, which wasn't part of the was not part of the design but when we looked then at the 12 month results overall in terms of putting all those anonymized results into a report we're suddenly sitting there going hang on a minute we can segment our clients based on their actual needs and characteristics rather than just their age and asset value which is the old fashioned way of doing it and we're kind of like isn't that what the FCA sort of asked for 10 years ago so so we stumbled on it. I'll be honest, it wasn't by design that we, we sort of produced these results, but that's kind of where we got to with it. So 
And we know then that exactly what our client needs and we know then how to deliver what they need. And that's a big part of the training is, you know, because it's, it is about learning styles. It is about education theory. It is about scaffolding, learning, etc. They're not skills that many IFAs have necessarily got. Don't get me wrong. There's some out there that do it intuitively and are brilliant. Um, but generally speaking, are they the kind of skills that IFAs have got? Probably not. And actually it's not in the core of what they, they need to know. So rather than having to go back to university and become a teacher, what we've tried to do is put this into a format that they can use. Yep. So we can get a real practical application. I suppose, um, and this is a lazy example, but taking kind of risk profiling as an example, um, and you mentioned advisor intuition there. If you go back 10, 20 years, good advisors were having great conversations with their clients to explain risk, explain volatility and all those kind of metrics and, and assess how the client reacts and recommend a, a solution appropriate to that. My observation is through risk profiling tools, you, you kind of dwindle that down to a process of answer these 10 questions. It says seven, we're going to go with seven. And I, I think that's protectionist and great for compliance. It's great for process and all those kind of things, but erodes a lot of the value. I, I agree. And I think hopefully advisors don't just do, you know, computer says seven, that's the way we go. And actually it's dangerous to do that. I know from the research we did, some of, the, some of the research and some of the studies I came across shocked me, really shocked me. And I think there's quite a good body of research that demonstrates that actually some of the psychometrics we're using are far more effective than a risk profile. And I'm like, that's not going to go through compliance, <laughs> is it? So, But genuinely, the kind of stuff that we're looking at, and it's also... When you start to, when we started to look at our own clients' risk profiles and did a, did an analysis against the results on our psychometrics, which no one's ever done before, you're suddenly sitting there going, "Well, that's not what we expected." You know, the conversation. Someone that's scoring high on a risk profile may be very confident with money and adventurous, and, and all, that's what we 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 think they are. And actually, when it boils down to it, when we're looking at the other psychometrics. That, that we, it would be irresponsible for us to put them in a, a risky investment because it's telling us no, their knowledge is low, their capabilities are low, and actually they're learning that their ability to adapt is, is is poor as well. So so there's all these other factors that need to be taken into consideration. What we're trying to build here is a really good conversation. It's not just about listening. C certain things have a wider impact than others. You know, something as simple. I know the FCA talks about it all day long, and compliance departments talk about it all all day long for the, for a good reason. Is emergency funds. All the research, all the research backs that up as being not just a good idea, but it makes a fundamental improvement to someone's decision making ability. So it also is a big contributor to mitigating stress. Now, these are general things I'm saying. The specific person, it's going to be down to them. We're all completely different. There's no set way of doing something with any individual because we've all got a different background. We've all got a different biology. We've all got a different whatever it is. And it's got to be the same with our clients. Um, and that, that's kind of what these guides do. They provide that opportunity for a very, very healthy conversation. I find it really interesting your um, kind of emphasis on teaching financial skills rather than purely literacy. And I wondered, 
if you could kind of elaborate on some of the, the key reasons people should do that and the skills people should have. This is going to sound really cynical. I think the reason why, particularly companies in our industry, and there's, there's, there's well-known ones that do this, that, that will go out delivering financial well-being education, they're delivering knowledge, they're delivering information. And that's, that's, that's great. But over the last decade plus, all the researchers said that's not effective. That does not improve someone's financial capabilities or their financial well-being. Cynically, I think the reason they do it is because they can deliver something fairly cost-effectively. Um, and also, largely what they're doing is they're trying to generate new clients. We know from the research, and look, one of the, the leading figures in the world on this is a, a fantastic professor called Anna Maria Lasardi. She's done loads of work on financial literacy assessment. Even when you look at the research she's done, she'll openly sort of comment that you, literacy is not enough. It, having the knowledge is not enough. Knowing how a mortgage work isn't going to change your life, to be fair. You've, it's the skills that matter. It's, it's improving people's control. It's imp improving people's resilience. It's in, in helping people improve their confidence with money. Recently, for example, you know, I had a couple of um, people from two of the largest investment companies in the world attend a at one of those workshops in London, just to get a flavour of what we do. Um, and I do remember one of them, because that individual is really good at tennis, the skills, the same skills that make her good at tennis, we can use those skills in terms of applying that in the financial stuff. Because when you're playing a game of tennis, there's resilience, there's confidence, there's control. All the same underlying skills are there. So it's our job to take those skills from other people's domains and apply them into, and show them how they can adapt those into the financial management side of things. Now, this is what the industry should be doing if it's serious about, they call the advice gap. I'm not so sure about the advice gap, but the, we know from all the research, the better versed our, that, that the public is in terms of their financial management the, the better they'll be able to recognize when they do need a financial advisor and they'll be prepared to pay for that service if they understand the value of it. Now, we often complain about, oh, they don't appreciate the value of what I do and all the rest of it. And I said, well, that's down to communication probably more than anything else. But the whole point of it is I would like to see and you know as many employees as possible get a basic financial skills education and, and not just be lectured to about this is how investments work this is how this 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 is what your pension does so what i want to know how i can take control i want to know how i can build resilience i want to know how i can be confident now and in my future because if i've got those elements and they are the key core elements of financial well-being i've got a good shot at it i've got a good shot at getting it right or when difficult things occur being able to adapt. I mean, just just uh, circling back to the advice gap because I, and this is me being super honest. I, I find it really useful. You know, r running a tech startup that's all about solving the advice gap. I'm like, great. FCA says there's 39 million people. I, I'm going to go with that. But I think when you when you pick past it, is there really th 39 million no. adults in the UK that need regulated financial advice from a chartered financial planner? No, and and I'm not saying this is the case, but there's a lot of situations that we come across because. If, for every 10 inquiries I get as an IFA, four of them, I'll probably say, taking into account everything we've discussed, taking everything in terms of your current situation, your age, where you are in your career, et cetera, et cetera, 
you don't need a financial advisor. I'll help you tidy this up. I'll help you get that in order. I am here whenever you need to talk to me. If you suddenly inherit a load of money or there's a big financial change in your life, or even if there's a big you know, family change in your life, you can always come back to me. But right now, all you need to be doing is this, this, and this. At this point, that's when my advice becomes really valuable to you. So come back to me at that point. Now, that was me just being honest and trying to help people. It's turned into a brilliant marketing strategy because at the end of the day, I end up, John will tell Peter, I met an IFA that gave me some great advice and didn't charge me for it, really. And Pete rings me up. And that's that happens. It does happen all the time. Or that guy then or that couple will will inherit money or or something will happen in their life or or he'll be offered a big job and he doesn't know what to do with his bonuses and everything so he does need some genuine advice and who's the first person he's going to call i've even had situations where i did a whole lot of f- free work for a family in wellingborough many years ago when when a, when the father passed away just to get things so they knew what the process was they didn't need to be paying for advice but I got them on the right sort of um, course with things. And one of the kids turned around and says, I'm I'm a specialist um, solicitor. I'm working with uh, PLC down south. They are currently using, I won't say who it was, but a big well-known IFA practice or financial advice practice. But there's a toopee going on. I know you've got a bit of experience with that. There's four companies coming together. They need someone to talk through how that all works from a benefits perspective, from an IFA perspective, et cetera, et cetera. Sat down with them. The last 10 years I've dealt with them and probably got 20 to 30 clients from it. So I think if you're just honest and you're trying to help people, it kind of pays off in in, in time. Um, I'm quite lucky because I don't have sales targets. That, that, That takes a lot of pressure off. But the advice gap for a lot of people, the advice, the, the kind of advice they need is actually, it could be as basic as debt management. I mean, we're working in, you know, with a rural chari- charity and financial advice on pensions. No, it's not required. It's it, this, the, different needs. And this is where the assessments we've put together can readily identify. It can also tell us if a client really needs us or not. Um, I don't want to take money from a client unless I feel and they feel that it's good value for money. So I know there's really interesting nuances in the, in the work you've done um, that draw the distinctions between kind of urban communities and their, their requirements versus rural. I, I wanted to, yeah, just dig into that and, and hear your thoughts. One of the things that I'm very, very fortunate to be is a trustee of Northampton Acre. Now, we're a rural charity. Um, we do a lot of work out in, in, in the in, um, villages uh, of Northamptonshire. The government changed the funding on how rural communities get support and it's disappeared into the health budget. So, you know, it's it's disappeared almost. One of the, the one of the key projects that our team that's out there involved in the communities was involved in was we, we did get a fund to help people pay energy bills because the cost of living crisis is really bitten in rural communities as hard, if not harder, um, than urban areas. You know, and you've got communities there that are isolated because the bus services have disappeared or um, it's where they've lived all their life. So they're incredibly isolated um, from people. Um, They want to get, if they get into trouble, they want help of citizens advice unless it's taken to them. Very often they can't come into the town for appointments because they can't get there. There's also a bit of mistrust between, you know, government 
bodies and 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 and, and themselves. So, and and it, it's accentuated. And I know Defra have done some good reports on this, and the Money and Pension Service have done some good reports on this. But there is a higher suicide rate for the same financial distress issues in rural communities than there is in urban communities and cities. And whether that's down to it's a support factor or whether it's just the cost to hire or whether it's just a case of that, that feeling of isolation, that not having access, that face-to-face access to debt management advice and support. Or we also know from the work we're doing with schools in terms of financial education the, the the schools in the town do it a lot better than the schools in the in the villages because they just don't have the same resources they don't have the same spread of people and that's one of the things we one of the projects we're involved in is we want to go out there to our own team of people that are running good community schemes and you know cost of living help schemes etc and that's key actually you need trusted sources to be able to provide this this help and that's why i'm going through the charities on this we're hoping that we can deliver some good financial education in 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 the rural schools and that can be from age five upwards there's things that you can teach you know and the money and pension service have done some great work on this you know the things that say for a seven-year-old needs to learn about is perhaps just what things do you pay for? What things cost money? Um, it's just a bit of awareness. As obviously you get older, there's more important things. At 16 to 18-year-olds, it's all about, yes, there's some content there, learning what a payslip looks like, you know, what it means, um, and maybe how to um, not get into debt, how, how to and, – and, and, and interesting, there's a subprime lender in, in our county that does a lot of car finance with over 100 employees, so they're obviously very successful – that have tasked us to design um, and and implement a financial education program for 16 to 18-year-olds. And their their brief was, we just want these kids not to make the same mistakes their parents did. And you're like, oh, that's harsh. But I get it. And actually, one of the keys to that will be, which, which I think is really important, is that their parents are aware of the education we're providing. Because socialized learning is the most effective learning what we learn off our parents our family our our brothers our sisters our close contacts that has a bigger impact than anything else so the idea is that yes we'll provide this education in the schools but an important part of that will be their parents will also indirectly be getting a bit of an an education financial education as well they'll be aware of it and they'll be invited in in each situation to be to for us to go through what we'll be going through with their kids. And it is very much, yeah, there's some content in terms of knowledge, but it also will be built around building the same skills that we're trying to build for employees in in companies we do workshops for from age 18 to 65. Same principles. Um, Learning is learning. Yes, and we we use the most up-to-date methods to do that. So, um, but rural communities have their unique challenges. I would like to see more of, say, what happens. Um, you know, one of the studies that shocked me when I was doing my dissertation was looking at the financial well-being of people living on a social housing estate in Northern Ireland. People with no money, skint, um, job to job, all sorts of issues. Their financial capabilities were off the scale. Now you probably sit there and intuitively say, well, they kind of have to be, don't they? Because of the way they have to manage so little, so much. But what was really striking was the community financial capability was really strong. They were, there was a, there was a, well, I've got nothing this week. John, can I borrow a tenner? 
I'll cover you next week when I've got this. And there was a, there was an element of trust which some which exists in that community, not so much in in a town or a city. So there's there was a unique set of features there, and it might be completely different in another community because science has to work on duplication. You can't just take one study and say, well, that must be a fact. It's a bit like you know the amount of people I know trying to work in this area who aren't qualified that will read a book or put up a series of books that they think, well, I've read this, so I know everything about this. Well, hold on a minute. Even Kahneman gets things wrong. Even though that study needs to be duplicated, and there has been some duplicated studies now, it did show up some very unique features in terms of, well, people without money have some pretty good skills as well because they have to manage it. The one interesting thing that came up which has got nothing to do with what we do, is the fact that they had a much greater acceptance of going without. That was a concept they they accepted and understood was just part of life. Most of our clients as IFAs, that's not a concept they'd even consider. I think the strangest thing I see, and, and it feeds into this, is IFA is sort of saying, oh, we're here to, you know, it, it's all about financial well-being, it's all about having greater choice. That, that's quite a moral maze in a way. Why should money create choice? And, and it's, it's not about choice. It's about agency. It's about being able to make choices. It's not about having choices. Um, and in fact, you could say, I mean, if you lived in Denmark, you don't have to worry. You, there's no choice when it comes to schooling because every school's good. I love the idea of that. There's no, there's no choice about what hospital we go to because every hospital is good. I like that. Choice, you know, there's a lot of, there's a paradox with choice. It's not necessarily a good thing. It's agency. And agency comes from skills. It doesn't come from financial position. It comes from financial skills. That is a real big misconception that I hear in industry forums all the time. This idea of greater choice means greater financial well-being. No, it's got nothing to do with it. But that that study in Northern Ireland was interesting. You showed this urban community working together. I'd love that to happen in rural communities, and some they do. But there's a lot of politics that goes on in parish council meetings, and you've got to get over these kinds of things. We were talking about it earlier this week in a meeting. We are saying, how, what's the best route in? So it's probably through our good neighbourhood schemes because people like those. And we've got four people out in the field doing these things all the time. That'll be my route. I'm going to train those four people, and then I'm going to go into each school and train one of the teachers it's got to be delivered by the right people at the right time. Not by me. I'll help support and design these things. But in terms of it's really critical. Without the trusted person they know delivering the information, it doesn't work. Which is, a, which is you'd hope that wasn't the case, but it is. Yeah, yeah. And it strikes me, um, so we get we asked um, or discuss a lot on, on this podcast about the intergenerational kind of wealth gap and movement of money and how financial advisors are typically well engaged with the, the kind of boomers that are moving into a position where, you know, they're, they're not going to be around for that much longer. And there isn't necessarily a good relationship between the advisor and the children of those clients and then their grandchildren as well and, and how that money's going to move and the, the I, I guess, systemic issue that creates for the industry. Um, and, and in what you were saying about you know, parents being well positioned as a trusted educator. Is that, is that the right way to look at it? What's it got to do with the industry? It should be what's got to do with the, with the needs of the individuals. If we've done a good job with the parents, if we've kept the children in the loop with their permission and 
you know, it's in a, it's it's an effective and efficient way of managing the wealth or the or the financial situation. You've got to you've got to. I don't know. I don't. Th- I think I think the the industry grappling with this all intergenerational finance is the big opportunity and all the rest of it. Yeah, it is. But if it's needed, yes. If it's required, absolutely. But it, it's it's almost like the argument of of um, uh, retirement income. I hate using the word retirement, by the way. I'm a, I'm a member of the Age Design Age Institute, and recently in Battersea, I went to a conference, took or a workshop talking about age discrimination, and that whole word retirement is 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 a you could say is well you know you're retired out to pasture that kind of it's got connotations which are negative, but let's say we talk about retirement income. My concern with retirement income is it's great. And whenever we do the modeling that we do, it's great that you say, oh, we've got to make sure you're not going to run out of money. What is it? How much do you need when you retire to make sure that you're okay and you'll survive long enough and all the rest of things, everything's paid for, et cetera. I think it's just as important. And I'm sure there's other advisors that are the same to establish what sacrifices you don't have to make today and still be okay. And, and, and too many, um, you know, quite often if we pick up a client that's come from particularly, you know, some of the bigger boys in the industry, February, March, all they do is get inundated by their advisor saying, oh, you need to get your allowance in for your pension, your ISA for this, for this, for this, for this. And they're like, it's the only time of the year we really hear from them because it's all about maximizing their income. And you think, wow, that's shocking that that's what the client's actually telling me is that. All the advisors trying to do is maximize their income um, by getting me to make sure I. And yes, clients need that those reminders, but they do feel like they're being sold to at that point. And what makes it worse is often they're paying a percentage on whatever those contributions are, which I personally think is unethical, but that's just my opinion. And if someone wants to tell me that's a stupid opinion, that's fine. Everyone's entitled to that. But it's a crazy situation, even with this intergenerational thing you're talking about. I kind of think, so what? If, if, if an individual, if the son or the daughter needs our advice and guidance, great. Hopefully we're, we're, we're trusted and we've established a relationship and we can help and, and we'll be their first point of call. But if we're not and we're not needed, then we shouldn't be pushing and selling it's, it's, it's got to work, it, you know, it's got to work not just from an industry's perspective, it's got to work from a client's perspective. I firmly believe that the better the financial skills are of the public, the more they will engage with advisors because they'll know when to use them and they'll recognize the value of using them. You know, someone coming to me at the age of 30 and they, they, they want to start a pension because they're self-employed and they're going to put 5,000 pounds in a year to a pension. And I can see for the next 10, 15 years, they don't really need an advisor. Am I going to engage with them and take, you know, whatever percentage it is or whatever annual fee it is? No, I'm just going to give them a bit of guidance, steer them in the right direction and say, when you get to this point, that's when you need to speak to an advisor. I'm still here. I'm still available. But if you find someone else that you prefer in the meantime, not a problem. So you, th- th- there's this joke that I really like that um, 75% of statistics are made up on the spot. And I think it's so accurate. And one of the things I'm, I'm enjoying about this conversation is your, you literally said the scientific method and the application of data and science. Um, and I think it's really easy in our industry, especially as it's emerging into 
that more professional state that, that, that everyone's kind of <laughs> talking about. Um, what are some of the perhaps frustrations or misuses of science that you see um, in our industry, especially as opposed to um, you know financial well-being or applied to financial well-being? Yeah, I mean financial well-being has been around a long time, a long, long time. HR departments that have good training departments have recognised that it's not just about the technical skills, the all-round skills, and financial management's always been what we'd consider, I'd consider a, a, a an all-round skill. So, unfortunately, what we've seen though is, and this is this is this is really showing an, an absolute uh, naivety in terms of what the scientific method is. I mean, the science scientific method is, you know, we perhaps got an idea of maybe some results, or maybe we've done it, gone out and asked some questions, and we've thought, crikey there's an issue here. So we come up with a hypothesis and we say, how can we test this issue? How can we find out what, what's going on here? So we come up with a hypothesis and a hypothesis works negatively, by the way. You can say, well, we think that A will cause B, but actually the hypothesis will be A doesn't cause B. Can we find a significant result that says otherwise? And that's that's how it works. The methodology is critical. You've got to use an appropriate methodology. So what I mean by that, I know when I did my dissertation, one of the conclusions was methodology matters. If you use these particular questionnaires, you get this result, and actually that doesn't test the construct properly. If you use this particular measure, you do get a better picture. And you know the what we call the statistical tests, like things like Crombach alphas and Shapiro-Wilkes ratios, et cetera, which test the validity of the figures demonstrates that certain methodologies are better than others. So there's a lot of, it's not easy. You've got to, my understanding of statistics is bonkers. Um, I was, it was nice recently. I met Paolo Costa from Vanguard that heads up their behavioral research center in Philadelphia. And he was saying the same thing. He says, I had to read it 50 times to grasp what's, how it worked. Um, and so you then got your set of data. Now, are they, are they correlational? Are they causation? Uh, is the causation, or if they're causation, and I did a factor analysis, which looks for cause rather than correlation, um, is it going the other way? Have I read this wrong? The critical evaluation of a paper is just as important as the papers, what the paper's saying. I can read the abstract, tells me a little bit. I can see a little bit of the background as to why they're even asking this question, because it might be, well, so what? What does that mean? It's, it's irrelevant. I then go to the limitations at the back and say, okay, let's understand what this paper is trying to do and, and, and admits it can't do. Then I'll look at the conclusion. And if I think there's an interesting result there, I'll check the methodologies correct as well. But in 15 minutes, I can strip that down. I can do that because I've probably read about 20,000 papers. I'm that sad git. So at the end of the day, what I see in our industry is this blind acceptance of a book I so many times I hear people saying, "Oh, the psychology of money is such a wonderful book." No, it's not. It's written by a financial journalist, and it's full of anecdotes. And there's other books similar to that, which I just don't read them. The one thing I'd say to IFA: stop reading them if you want to understand what financial well-being actually is. Go to the research. Go to the studies. Stop reading these popular science books because they're full of anecdotes about people that. And anecdotes are not evidence. That's the one thing. The other mistake that our industry makes is these forums that they set up. And they, it's all about, and, and they're just a way of perpetuating confirmation bias. Let's all get together and talk about stories of our clients and this and that. And the money coaches are probably the worst at this. It's, it's just, 
Oh yeah, I love that. And it's just hearing the same old thing time and time again. As as an academic, I would the greatest joy that an academic will ever have is being proven wrong, because it's like great change of direction. It's it's about the science. It's actually about the content and not about me. It's you know I'm irrelevant in the process. Another thing I heard recently in a seminar, and I was just like, oh my god, I can't believe I just heard that was. Universal truths. There are no universal truths when it comes to psychology. Let me tell you that. And oh, it's not my opinion. It's the research. Well, you chose the research. You interpreted that research, and you've built a case on that research. Science is still has an opinion. It has to because the one thing that a lot of people don't do is critically evaluate. I can look at a study and say, actually, that's got some really interesting. Results, but it it didn't do a Q power. It's 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 got what we call um, it's saturated. It's got too many participants, and it's because it's got so many participants, it's generated a result when actually it shouldn't have generated a result. It's a false result. So it's all these things that can happen in science that they get wrong, and that's why science isn't a definitive answer to anything. It's the best we understand today, based on the weight of research that's been done, and. Psychology went through a replication and a whole crisis about ten or fifteen years ago in terms of how it was done. Those methods have been rigorously improved. So, yeah, I wouldn't be looking at financial. You know, there is some good financial well-being research done over the last twenty-five, thirty years, but it's it's really since about two thousand seventeen, it's gone another to another level. And there's some great stuff out there, but it contradicts a lot of what I hear in the industry all the time. Um, but does the industry necessarily want to hear it? No. Um, you know, I know an, another big provider, head of behavioral research, had a chat with in December. I was surprised that I'd been looking at studies in India. And I'm like, well, last year, 250,000 students in India got their master's. Do you not think the quality of the research they're doing is of value? It is a massive value. And we all follow the same method. We all follow a, a very strict way of doing science. That's, that's how empirical research works. There is a set way of doing it so that, and there's a set way of presenting it so that I can pick up a paper from anywhere in the world and straight off the bat recognize if it's pseudoscience or genuine science. That's the other thing. I mean, if you ever pick up a popular science book and it starts off with, we all think this or this is us, that's the greatest signal that it's pseudoscience you're entering the world of. There is no such thing as we or us in science. It's, it's, it's the data. It's, it's, but you can't hide behind the research because you've got to interpret the research. Um, that's, in my mind, the biggest issue I see. So there's a misuse of it. On the flip side, you know, some of the providers they do get it. I sat there with you know with the guy chap from Vanguard recently and. Completely, you know, we're, we're on the same page when it comes to what are the drivers. The education method, they haven't got a clue on, but in terms of the drivers behind financial well-being, they get it. And and, and there are good organisations out there that have got to that bit. It's the, get, getting the practical application, that's where the lab steps in and does that bit for them. If I'm a financial advisor listening to this and I'm about to head off skiing and I've just packed a copy of the psychology of money in my suitcase. Sorry, get rid of it. Where would you, what else should be lo- I be looking at? Is there some good journals that you, you'll go to use or? There's lots, there's, do you know what? There's lots of good journals, but there's also a skill in terms of how to 
find the right journals and also find the right and, and understand what you're reading and, and how to critically evaluate that. I can't teach someone how to do that. That is a postgraduate level skill. You know, you don't necessarily go to university to learn a subject. You learn a skill set. You learn how to critically evaluate things, you, you know, and that's why organisations value a postgraduate level qualification because there's a different level of thinking and critical evalu evaluation that goes on. It's the same with our investment managers. They have a skill set which is extraordinary in you know in terms of what they're doing. For us to 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 sort of say, well, you know, John around the corner knows nothing about pensions. That's why you come to me. And then we pretend we're psychologists. For goodness' sake, I mean that that scares me. That really scares me. That's got to stop. In terms of where do you go for it? Well, I'll be honest. We're going to start to publish some stuff. Um, I think the money and pension service is a great place to start. I, I can never believe it when I hear IFA slagging that organization off because the job it does is phenomenal. And people that have gone to the money and pension services, particularly to look at the pensions, to get some pensions guidance, are more likely to use a financial advisor. And there's other organizations like that. There is some good research out there. Interpreting it is a different thing. Um, we're hoping the lab will, will bridge that gap, to be honest, so that we can start to roll out some training and some support for advisors. I think most advisors want to do an awesome job. I really do. But this is a difficult area. It's a really tricky area, you know, and I found it really hard. I found it really hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Was it worth it? Yeah, it was worth it. But it took a, it's, you know, three hard years to, to, to do what I did, sadly. <laughs> you know, two and a half thousand hours I clocked up doing my dissertation. So there's a lot of hard work in it, and if there's any way we're able to bring that to the industry, that's what we hopefully we're going to try and starting to do this year in particular. But don't get don't get scared by what I've just said. It can be done, um, and there's some good there's, there are some good sources out there. But please throw the books away. You know they, they just they they're, they're pointless. Um, that's not it's not where the answers are. And if you think that you know how Bill Gates does this or does that is going to help your client forget it anecdotes are nonsense they're not good science well i found that amazing that was a really great shout and super insightful thanks so much no problem you're good at this thank you, <laughs> as you i really I really felt at ease thank you